You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Sarah New, Executive Director here. I'll pronounce her okay with me. And I'm going to just dive right in. So how many of you are familiar with the verse, the poor you will always have with you? So in the Gospels, Jesus says it. And, it, you know, traditionally it's taken to mean um, poverty always, always exists. So we should just focus on, you know, spiritual things like heaven, salvation, that type of thing. And even if you did not grow up hearing that verse, um, I think most of us have more or less internalized that message or that interpretation in a sense that we've become, I would say, like largely desensitized to poverty, to the fact that debt is something we always carry around us and we'll have debt until we die. Um, you know, we'll, when economists say that there's always going to be a percentage of unemployment, we're like, OK, I guess that's just the laws of nature. Oh, if we, you know, someone asks for money on the street, we're like, okay, yep, you know, we expect there almost to, uh, but there are people without homes, even though we have so many empty homes in the city. So I'm going to try to unpack this verse a little bit more because, you know, whether we know the verse or whether we don't know it, I think it's a prevalent attitude in how we operate. So I've, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the traditional interpretation of it. I've read also more progressive um, versions of it. And if you're interested in a more progressive interpretation, I would check out the book Always With Us, What Jesus Really Said About the Poor by Liz Theo Harris, who is one of the leaders uh, with Reverend William Barber at the Poor People's Campaign. But I also will be honest that I don't really find either interpretation 100% satisfying. I think this is a tough verse we'll just have to like wrestle with and just figure it out together, basically. So I'm going to try a new experiment where this sermon would be like half collective Bible study um, and half sermon where I just like talk at you. So if it doesn't work, we just wouldn't do it again. But we thought, you know, why not just try it and just see how it goes. So I'll go through it verse by verse and y'all just offer some thoughts, I'll ask some questions. I'll read your comments. I'll actually take your time to read. And then we'll just go into the next verse. And, you know, even if you if you don't really like to do this stuff, just participate to make me feel better. Um, so the, the, the chapter we're talking about is Matthew 26. Um, and so this is at the very top. I'll read the verse and I will just kind of engage with it as a community. I'll just read the comments. When Jesus had finished saying things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the son of man will be handed over to be crucified. So I just want you to put yourself in this scene. Um, let's imagine you are one of the disciples. Jesus has just spent however many hours giving parables, talking about the end time, talking about the kingdom of God. How would you feel if, you know, your master, the person, your, your rabbi, someone you've given up a lot to follow, uh, says this, says that, you know, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified in two days. What what reactions come up for you? What questions will come up for you? And I'm, I'm just going to wait for people to respond and then I'll move on. And I'll check YouTube as well because we have 22 people watching YouTube. Awesome. So, you know, if you're a disciple, most likely, um, you might be feeling a little bit shocked, a little bit of denial. 
um, that Jesus is saying this, maybe a bit of confusion. Kevin, great question. Where do we go from here? Uh, Angela, I want to know why. wouldn't believe it. Yeah, I mean, I think just confusion and denial and, you know, all this stuff. I mean, you've just seen this guy perform so many miracles. Yes, <laughs> Andrea's big question. Why can't you get out of this? I just saw you raise someone from the dead, a.k.a. Lazarus. What's, what's your deal here? Yes, problem solving. How can we stop this? Wow, okay, the comments really gotten really intense. Great, save the energy. Let's just keep it going. <laughs> um, all right, so the next chapter of the verse. Um, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, his name is Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or they may be riot among the people. So while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured in his head as he was reclining at the table. All right, so I just got a lot of, dumped a lot of information on you. We're not going to unpack each line here, but um, let me just ask a simple question. Where is Jesus chilling at? You know, where, what, what just, you know, without knowing too much, without doing a ton of Googling, what is the significance of the fact that he's hanging out with Simon the leper? Any guesses as to the status of Simon in society? Okay, well, I'm going to answer this one. Uh, it's not very high. I mean, I think if, if you, you know, just do a quick refresh of leprosy in the Bible, basically, if you're a leper, no one wants to be near, near you. You're a social outcast. You can't go near the temple. Um, it's like you have COVID and no one wants to go near you, except it's much worse because it's like you have COVID because your mother sinned. And that's why you're a leper, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, hi, cat. Um, so, the, so that's one thing to kind of note, like where Jesus is, is having this conversation. Um, yes, unclean, all, all those great things. And cleanliness, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. But, and then, so that, but then this someone enters the room, this woman. Any guesses what's going on through her head? Like what is motivating her? What is um, to do this? And just to give a bit of context, I did the Googling. When that's very expensive perfume, we're talking probably about um, a third of an annual day laborer's wages. So if some, if an average laborer makes 30 to 40K, you're talking about $10,000 um, perfume of, uh, jar of perfume. So yes, what reactions do you have? What questions come up for you? What are you curious about so far? Oh, my mug also has cats on it drinking green tea with brown rice for this curious it's waiting for the comments okay so jonathan has interpretation of is giving angela's like where'd you get the money from yeah i mean she could be very wealthy or she it could be like her life savings who knows there's a lot of different questions um <laughs> chris is a hilarious question uh, <laughs> Jesus is upgrade his policy if she wants to avoid getting crucified. Who we'll let her in here? Sam is thinking about her and please take her son. I think Phil is, is a great point that Jesus basically responds to. So Phil says, did she hear Jesus say he was going to be crucified? 
So let's transition to the next verse, and I think this will get at some of it. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant, as I think some of you can relate. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached in the world, uh, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So, um, Jesus, at least, it seems to be interpreting um, this perfume gesture as a preparation for his burial. And as Jonathan said, it is something that you would do for a king. Um, like, I don't know if I would buy a $10,000 bottle of perfume for anybody. Um, but, you know, no matter, you know, whatever. So uh, there's some some kind of royal burial treatment preparation going here. And you see that the disciples, you know, are, you know, these men questioning the financial decision making of this woman. But I, I want to focus in particular on um, this verse the poor you always have with you but you will not always have me when she poured this perfume on my body she did it to prepare me for burial so questions what what are you curious about what are you wondering what reactions do you have here and like i said this is a, a tricky and tough verse i i don't think i have uh, great answers ash she's honoring him in life or maybe that's ali either one um yes i think this is definitely this kind of rachel foreshadowing a burial process Think about also the difference between her reaction and what the disciples uh, may have reacted. It, earlier, when we talked about the reaction of the disciples, there's this kind of like denial, how do we problem solve? Um, but here is this woman who's going straight into burial mode almost. Um, John asks a question, who is she? How did she know to prepare Jesus for burial? Totally, was, you know, was she happened to walk by and hear what was happening? Did the angel speak to her? We don't really, there's some speculations as to who she is, something like Mary Magdalene, but basically this is an anonymous um, person. Angela pouring out her grief. Sammy, um, be mindful and present. Andre, okay, yeah, this priority. So I think there are a few possible meanings here. Um, yes, I think Sierra also has a question comments that maybe this is about a super utilitarian philosophy only donate where money goes the furthest and she's commenting on that um so i think there are a couple of meanings here one is uh like what people are saying about being present jesus is saying this woman is the only one who gets the fact that i'm about to die who has kind of accepted it who is making preparations the rest of you are sitting there stunned shocked trying to problem solve trying to be like how to prevent you from being crucified what have you she's the only one who gets it the other way to think about it is, um, you know, there are so many ways, but one of the other ways is Jesus saying, you know, it's good to help the poor, social justice is great, but there are certain origin priorities or situations that might call for a different response. Um, so maybe, let's just example, you're protesting every week, but you want to take this week to like quarantine and see your grandma, that's fine. Or maybe, you know, you, um, your grandfather died recently, you know, you could give the money to a mutual aid fund, but... In this case, you want to give the money to help prepare a funeral for your grandpa. Um, I realize purses take also people over possessions. Um, there's a way in what she does is so extravagant and just to honor someone's life that cannot be justified over, um, that is far more valuable than the, the, the you know, the price of the perfume is, as well. So I think that this is, there are many ways to kind of take it and interpret it. 
Um, I'm just going to introduce two more things for you to keep as you, as you read this verse, since, you know, you know, you all give money so that I can do research and come back to you and give you things to think about, basically. So in general, uh, and one reason why I wanted to do this kind of interactive outside is to just encourage people to engage with the text so it feels less intimidating. As you can see, like if you just practice it, you know how to do it. But one of the things that just I recommend you always do with a passage is that um, to just read the chapter, we skim it, the chapter before and chapter after, or the passage before, passage after. So you just kind of get a sense of what's going on. So a passage before um, is Jesus in the famous passage in Matthew 25, where Jesus says, at the end of times, the king will be there and king will say, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance and the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave something me something to eat. I was thirsty and gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you or thirsty or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of his brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So, I mean, he goes on to say a little bit more, but it's quite a fascinating uh, passage where Jesus said, the righteous of the kingdom of God are those who feed the hungry, clothe those without clothes, visit people in prison, take care of the sick, um, because, you know, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Jesus essentially saying, I am the poor. I am the hungry, I am the unclothed, I am the unhoused, I am the prisoner, I am the sick. Um, and I don't think Jesus is being, you know, 100% rhetorical here. We see in Matthew 8 um, that Jesus says, Foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So one, you know, common uh, interpretation of this verse is that Jesus is, uh, a person without a house, without an apartment, without a place to live. He's sleeping on the streets. He's sleeping maybe in friends' homes, relatives' homes. Um, so that's, and then we know that that is more likely the case than not because when Jesus is crucified, he's buried in the tomb of a very rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who buries him in his own, like, really new tomb. And which kind of implies that Jesus basically had zero inheritance, that he may have died and been buried in a poor anonymous gravesite, basically, if it weren't for the intervention of Joseph. So the question I have for you is, if Jesus identifies himself with the poor and says, it's not the poor and me, we are, we are one, how does that change, if at all, the way you read the verse, uh, the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me? Wait for wait for the comments. Yes, Philip has a great point. This is something Liz Theo Harris talks about, which is that the early Christians were known for providing a burial for those who had no means. Um, that was one of the things that kind of stood out for them. There were family for those who did not have uh, a family or do not have a family with needs. What else would people comment? All right, so I'm going to move on a little bit here. So I, 
the the other thing I'm going to introduce besides Matthew 25, it's another chapter. So another common tip when, when engaging in text is you want to ideally get a Bible with uh, footnotes that can kind of do just quick, very short explanations of terms or references. And if not, uh, just go to BibleGateway.com or some online thing that gives you the footnotes. So I don't know if we have a slide of this, but if you go to BibleGateway.com and you just put in uh, Matthew 26, let's say uh, for some reason, different translations have different footnotes. But um, the NIV translation, at least, has a footnote. Uh, for the poor, you'll always have view. There's a footnote that says, see Deuteronomy 15.11. Okay, so that's a big clue. Let's go to Deuteronomy 15.11 and just read what it says. There will always be poor in the land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. Okay, so yeah, you can see the footnote on the slide there. And... Just click on it, and then boom, here we go. So this is this verse kind of indicates that Jesus is pretty much directly quoting uh, a verse from the Torah, which all his followers and disciples would be very familiar with because he would recite it uh, once a year. Oops, that's my, and put on do not disturb on my computer. Um, the, so, so what's the deal with Deuteronomy 15? I don't have time. We don't have time to do like a full verse by verse Bible study thing as we did before, which is great. That was awesome. Love the participation. But so I'm just doing a quick summary. So Deuteronomy 15, you've heard Jonathan preach about this. It's, it's the Jubilee year. Uh, at the end of every seven years, all debts have to be canceled within the Israelite community. So, for instance, I've lent my, my sister our second Dutch oven for baking sourdough. At the end of seven years, she doesn't have to give it to me back. Which would suck, to be honest, but it's okay because we have two debt jobs. Um, but more seriously, you know, all student debt is canceled, credit card debt is canceled, medical debt is canceled, which is huge. Which is why I, I, we had a great question was, you know, what would you do if you didn't have any debt? And this has pretty big ripple effects because debt really undergirds so much of our society, of our financial economy. Um, all, if you have a mortgage, you owe the bank a debt. So if mortgages are canceled every seven years, that kind of means that rent most likely will be canceled as well. Um, and so if you, you know, think of the question, what would you do if you didn't have to pay rent? I mean, that's sky's the limit. Um, oh, okay, people seem to be confused what a Dutch oven is. You know, it's just like a thing, a pot you just put into the oven and you put on stove, whatever. So um, the, the reason why I think canceling debt is so crucial is because debt is really how people spiral into poverty, in particular in this historical context. Um, it is the way in which the uh, reason by which people might sell themselves into slavery or into kind of bond servitude. Um, and I don't have to get, don't have time to get into the nuances of slavery in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. But um, just so you know, uh, that debt leads people to slavery. And that's also why in this chapter, Jesus uh, got the Torah says, every seven years you have to free your slaves. So what we see here is that God, because um, Israelites were former slaves, God says very clearly, I do not want to create a society in which slavery is a permanent feature, in which debt is a permanent feature, in which poverty is a permanent feature, and I'm going to create a mechanism for abolishing slavery, for abolishing poverty, abolishing debt. And if you just think about it a little bit, I mean, how many of, um, uh, of us have you know, just been in a situation where you take out a loan, you know, maybe it's $500 or $5,000, you can't pay back, the interest accumulates, and you just pay off the interest. And then five years later, you've paid basically $1,000 or $10,000, but you still have like a huge amount of loan left. Uh, and so this kind of vampire sucking nature of debt is what sinks people into 
visual uh, downward spirals of poverty, of bankruptcy, and eviction. The study um, is more and more research being done on this, but they just did a, a small study in a, in a county in Washington state that surveyed people who are living uh, without houses and apartments, and they found that 80%, more than 80% of them had debt, um, credit card debt, payday loan debt. And, uh, you know, the biggest debt actually was medical debt, which you know, speaks to the brokenness of our healthcare system. And debt usually extended their period of being houseless uh, by about average of two years. And just by the way, because we're having this conversation on race, canceling debt has huge implications for racial equity. Um, African-Americans and Native Americans are almost, uh, the percentage uh, of this, uh, populations that are uh, houseless are almost double or triple their, their percentage in the general population. I think about 40% of homeless people are Black, and Black people only make a third, 13% of the population. And so when we talk about reparations, racial equity, canceling debt and housing people without houses really goes a huge, huge uh, long way. And this is not just applicable domestically, but globally as well. Um, you know, most people know, uh, well, most people don't, probably don't uh, know because it's not really taught in schools. Uh, and I sort of learned this in my, in my 20s. The Haitian Revolution uh, was the first national successful slave insurrection um, and globally. And, you know, they threw the French in 1804. And what happened when France uh, lost, they demanded that Haiti um, pay back the loss of its property, meaning the loss of land and the loss of its slaves, basically, which is pretty uh, insane. So Haiti owed at that point in time, France, the modern day equivalent of $21 million, which is um, huge. And their economy is torn apart because of war. And it took up until 1947, more than 100 years later, for Haiti to just begin finish paying the interest on that debt. So if you want to learn more, I would go to Jubilee Debt Campaign. I think Melissa's going to drop the link in the comments. Uh, it's a name, obviously, you can see it's taken straight from the Bible. And just learn more about how there are entire countries who have owe a ton of debt, not just to, like, um, you know, America, stuff like that, but usually to Citibank, to Chase to IMF, to the World Bank, um, and w ways in which poor countries basically, by taking on this debt, are forced to cut healthcare, forced to cut education, and forced to cut a lot of social services. So I, I don't want time to get into it, but let's going back to scripture, why does the Torah seem to indicate um, that canceling debt is important? Is there a particular verse that says it? And I think there is a verse, it's early on in chapter 15, where Torah says, uh, there shall be no needy among you, since the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion, if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all this instruction. Um, love all the comments on debt. Um, this is like all gold mines. I hope I get more time to read through them. But if we focus on this verse, you know, there are a couple ways of interpreting it. But I think it's actually a pretty straightforward interpretation to say that there shall be ne no needy among you, if only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all of his instruction. So essentially, if you'll follow the commandments, there will be no needy, there will be no poor. So several verses later, in the same chapter, the Torah says, there will always be poor people in this land, just why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. So, how do we reconcile the two things? On one hand, there should be no needy among you. Other hand, it says there will always be the poor in the same chapter. And I think 
if you take if you accept the premise that the system of debt cancellation is meant to abolish poverty, then how you read you know there will always be the poor among you uh, is quite different. Basically, you read it as there will always be the poor among you because not everyone follows the commandment to cancel debt. Because humans are imperfect and they don't always follow God's commandments, the Torah essentially says, okay, if we accept that you know because of disobedience, basically people are poor. When someone asks you for money, open your hand. Don't be stingy. Don't be tight-fisted. Don't be asking, like, how do we know how they're going to spend the money? Or how do we know if they're acting or not? And so, given all of this, why do you feel that Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 15 in the Gospel? I'm going to read, catch up in the comments section. So, yeah. Any sense as to why Jesus would try to bring in Deuteronomy 15 and the ways in which... Um, all that happens into the Gospels. So Liz, Jesus calling us not to, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Totally agree with you, Liz. Great comment here, Jesus calling us not just to give token help to the poor, um, but to end the structures which marginalize people. And debt, obviously, is one of the huge, huge structures that happen internationally and uh, domestically. Lydia's great comment, the glorification of debt in our society has created this mindset of associating humans' worth with what they owe. Um, Ash has great, more, even more great history on Haiti. And yes, student medical debt is, is pretty much the worst because you're literally trying to get ahead and you can't even go to college without taking on debt and then you're penalized for it. Um, okay. So yes, more radical giving. So it seems like people are saying that this is not just about you know, giving money in a interpersonal sense, but also examining the larger systems as to uh, why are they poor people in the first place? And I think that is uh, the spirit of what Jesus is trying to say in the Gospels. When Jesus is saying the poor will always be with you, Jesus is saying the poor will always be with you because you have chosen it. Unemployment rates exist because we've set up our, our, our economic structure such that, it, that it, that's sort of the case. When people are priced out of their neighborhoods because a Whole Foods, you know, comes up that block, it's because we did not choose to regulate rent. Um, there are currently 13,000 houseless families in New York City and there are 13,000 vacant apartments. But we choose to spend a billion dollars a year, uh, a billion dollars a year on temporary housing shelters. So I think this is a choice we've made as a society. It's, it's not about blaming individuals for the choices. It's about what as a society have we choose it. And so when it's the poor always with you, it's actually, I think, the opposite. It's, it's not, this is just the, the fabric of society, we should accept it. It's actually when to examine the choices we've made that lead to this pervasiveness of poverty. So then the question is, you know, if we, if we think, okay, if you more or less uh, accept this interpretation, then how do we make sense of the end, that last half of the verse? The poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. And I think uh, it, it's a tough one. Like I said, I don't really have uh, a great um, answer. And I'm going to read through some of the comments to see if there, there are more answers that, can, that are interesting to people. Um, the, I think the, the way I kind of read it, you know, just my, my basic human sense, is that maybe Jesus is saying the poor exists because we as a society have chosen to accept it. Um, and I get it. Jesus is saying, I'm poor too. I'm a poor man. Um, but I am, I'm going to die in like three days. So maybe let's just sit with that for a little bit. Sit with the grief and the confusion that makes up what is to come. 
Instead of being in denial and worrying about what's out there and the problems we need to solve out there, let's focus on what's here, what's happening right now. So maybe, you know, I should have given a sermon on like grief and denial, let's say, um, but someone else can do that sermon. Like I said, so I think that's just one one take on this verse. I, I don't know if I'm 100% satisfied with it. And I'd love to know if you have some better interpretations. Um, comment below. And I'm also going to do the, the forefront Q&A at the, at the end of service for five minutes. So I'd love to just chat with people. Um, Phil has a great point in the worship of money at the bottom of all of this. Um, so, yeah. I, so, like I said, I think, you know, this sermon is not going to wrap up a nice neat bow. I think they are... Um, some very clear tech takeaways I hope we would come away with that poverty is not inevitable. It's a choice we made as a society. So it's a, it's a choice we've made to not abolish, as Ash is saying, the systems of exploitation. It's not just about handing out like a, a check. Um, but I think there is tension with this verse. And I think it's probably healthy for us to just learn how to sit with that tension and just be okay with a bit of uncertainty. And maybe, you know, we'll find a resolution in our own ways here and there. So I'm going to end and pray together. God, we thank you that you um, are clearly a God who cares for the least of these, um, for those who are poor, that you are, um, are thinking and mindful about the systems of exploitation, the systems of debt that range all the way from a credit card to the IMF, um, that exploit the poor and that exploit uh, all of us, really. Um, I thank you also that you are a, a, a God of mystery, a God of tension uh, and certainty that you don't, you know, that you've given us not necessarily clear answers, but certainly values and ways to think to and things to wrestle with and things to try to live by. I pray that, um, yeah, that our community will continue to wrestle with this, to continue to wrestle with this verse, continue to ask hard questions around why poverty exists, um, ask hard questions around, you know, what does Jesus mean in this particular gospel? I pray that your spirit would be with us, your spirit will lift up any human spirit, any body um, who is downtrodden and who needs um, your power and your love and your grace. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.